Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Persevering in Hope. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Rebellion Must Come First. I have made mention in the past that the question of our Lord's second coming has created speculation, often disagreements, even false rumors among believers. It shouldn't be that way. We should always be clear about what belongs to the plain teaching of Scripture, identify that chapter and verse, and then, of course, understand what it says and doesn't say. However, when it comes to theories and speculations as to how things fit together, we should identify that as well. We all need a little more humility. We should make a distinction between what we know with certainty and what we think might happen. So let me suggest an example. In Matthew 24, Jesus describes the events that must accompany his return. The discussion started when the disciples came to him and asked him, what was the sign of his coming? What are the signs of the close of the age? And in response, Jesus begins with a word of warning. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Among other things that he says, let me quote him, Matthew 24, 7 to 8. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, from that passage, the speculation and theories have abounded. I can't tell you how often I've heard someone say, didn't you know? that earthquakes are going to increase right before the Lord returns. And I always say, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, they say it's, it's right there in Matthew 24. And response, let me say two things. From all the data that I've seen, it doesn't seem like we're seeing more earthquakes in our day than has been the historic average of earthquakes in previous ages. There have always been earthquakes, and there are earthquakes today. And furthermore, Jesus never said earthquakes would increase in intensity as a sign of his coming. That's sheer speculation. What he did say is that wars and famines and earthquakes would continue to carry on right until his second coming. That's all he said, and everything else is speculation. You know, once we notice what the text actually says and then make a distinction between that and our theories of how it might play itself out, well, we'll find ourselves in a place of certainty, not easily shaken. Here's another example. As I record this, we're still living in the time of a global pandemic that has brought disease and suffering and death to the entire earth. And people often ask, is this a sign of the Lord's return? And my response is as follows. We can't know that. You know, we do know that there have been numerous times in world history where a pandemic has threatened the lives of countless people. And well, surely we haven't forgotten the, the Black Death of the 1300s, the flu pandemic of 1918, the, the various cholera pandemics in history, the bubonic plague in the 500s. Well, there have been many times when disease has stalked the land and the earth. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. You know, someone said to me, but, you know, this one feels different, to which I respond, look, it only feels different because you weren't alive through the Black Death. If you had been there, well, this would seem rather mild in comparison. 
That brings me then to the question of today's texts. Are there actual signs that must precede the coming of our Lord? Are we expecting certain things before the day of the Lord arrives? I've made the point that in Thessalonians, the day of the Lord, the parousia, the end of the age, the appearance of our Lord with his powerful angels to inflict vengeance on his foes, and the taking up of the Lord's people in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, all of these events are not separated out in the Thessalonian letters. They're part of one grand event. And I mention that because I'm quite aware that there are numerous theories that we should separate these matters out, that these events will happen at different times. But Thessalonians never says that. If these events are separated out at the time of the end, well, then so be it. But Thessalonians never explicitly teaches that. It's an assumption or a theory that we sometimes place on top of this text. See, I'm happy never to divide with fellow Christians based on theories of the end times. You know, I have my own theories, but I will hold with all my heart and mind those things that the Bible explicitly teaches. And so since Thessalonians teaches the parousia or the day of the Lord as one event, that's how I'm teaching this book. But that brings me back to the problem at Thessalonica. Some people had thought that the day of the Lord had already come, or as I've already said, perhaps we can read the grammar to mean that the day of the Lord is already now happening. And they're very unsettled. And so to combat that error, Paul makes the point that certain things must precede the day of the Lord. And that's where we are in today's text. So let's read it, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 5. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that the day of the Lord will not come until three things occur first. That is, until these three things happen, that day will not arrive. Now, I hasten to add those three things can happen so quickly that it is quite appropriate to speak of the coming of the Lord as imminent that it can happen at any time, and I'll get into that later. Now, on a technical note, the words in our English text that the day of the Lord will not come, that you see that in the beginning of verse 3. Well, those words are actually not in the Greek text. They are what are commonly referred to as an ellipsis, or I guess another way of saying that is a, a kind of an abbreviation. Let me give you a modern-day example of that. Whenever we speak about the poor or the downtrodden, well, that's a kind of an abbreviation. What we really mean is the poor people. But when we just say the poor, well, it's a kind of an abbreviation, but everyone knows what we mean. And so to be quite literal, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 reads, Let no one deceive you in any way, for unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, pretty well that's a period. So do you see that the words in our English text, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes. I mean, those words are absent in the Greek text. We call that an ellipsis. Now, I only mention that because some Bible teachers have argued that Paul is not saying that day will not come unless. Rather, 
that Paul is saying the Lord will not come in judgment against the wicked until the rebellion comes. That's to say, from their perspective, there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled for the Lord to gather his people unto himself. But there is something that must occur before the Lord brings vengeance on the unrighteous. So from that perspective, these two things, the coming of our Lord and the vengeance on the wicked, must be two separate events. Well, that may be. However, as we've seen, Paul is discussing the day of the Lord. See, back in verse 2, he says, some of you are upset because you think the day of the Lord has come or that it's in the process of happening. Well, now, clearly, they didn't think the judgment of the wicked had begun. I mean, how could they? And I've argued that the best explanation is that some of them thought that all of the events that surrounded the day of the Lord were already now happening, and that includes both the judgment of the wicked and the taking up of the saints into glory. And and this had brought confusion, and many of them were upset. But, says Paul, look, all these series of events can't happen until three things happen first. Well, the first is the rebellion, and the Greek word that he uses is the word apostasia. We got our English word apostasy from that, and so there are some translations that say that day will not happen until the apostasy comes first. And second, he says that day won't happen until the man of lawlessness is revealed. So we're going to have a greater look at what that means. And then third, and this is just a spoiler alert, uh, we won't have time to study this today, but if you go all the way down to verse 7, Paul speaks of the one who restrains the spirit of lawlessness. And then when he's taken out of the way, that's, that's when the rebellion or the apostasy happens, and that's when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And so from my vantage point, the the logical progression seems to go this way. The day of the Lord won't happen until first, the one who restrains is removed, and then second, that will result in a rebellion, which at least, so it seems to me, that will pave the way for the Antichrist. Stay tuned. We're so grateful for all of our listeners from coast to coast to coast. If you'd like to join the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, we'd love to invite you to become a member of our new 1119 Fellowship, our monthly donor program. We're also grateful to be able to offer all of our listeners the opportunity to participate in a special match campaign this month that was launched at our recent virtual event, The Gathering. For every dollar you give toward the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding opportunities to share the truth of God's Word in Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, perhaps this is the perfect time. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. You know, verse 3 tells us that the day of the Lord will not arrive until the rebellion occurs. So what rebellion is Paul referring to? So it seems to me that he writes in a cryptic manner here because he most likely went over this material when he was with the Thessalonians in person. 
And so Paul's probably reminding the Thessalonians what he had already taught them and what they should have already known. Again, the Greek word is the word apostasia. The word occurs a number of times in our Bible. So, for instance, it's found in Acts 21, verse 21. You know, in that passage, Paul had been going up to Jerusalem, and the Christians are fearing that the Jewish religious establishment is going to freak out when he gets there. And so they say, Acts 21, 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So that word forsake, that's the Greek word apostasia. The enemies of Paul are saying that Paul is telling Jews all over the world to apostatize from Moses, that is, to abandon Moses, to forsake Moses, to fall away from Moses, to deny Moses. That's what apostasia means. Now look at 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith. To depart from the faith, well, that's again the word apostasia to abandon the Christian faith, to forsake Christ, or to deny Christ. So whenever we have someone today that announces their deconversion, we who are Christians should actually use of them biblical language. That person is an apostate. And so when Paul says, look, that day, that is, the day of the Lord will not occur until the apostasy comes, what does he mean? Does he mean that just before Jesus returns, a great many people will fall away from the Christian faith and that Christian churches will empty out and there's going to be a great falling away from Jesus. Is that the rebellion that he speaks of? Well, some have argued, yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Indeed, Jesus himself seems to speak that way. You might remember in Matthew 24, 12 to 13, Jesus says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So in the time of the end, says Jesus, many who once claimed to love him are going to have a cold heart. So in essence, they're going to become apostates. But notice in that same verse why that happens. In the last days, says Jesus, lawlessness will increase. And go forward to Matthew 24, 24. Jesus again is speaking, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And that would seem to indicate that you can't lead the elect astray, but that many people who are apparently converted or who look to us as if they had been Christians, they will suddenly fall away. Now, since Jesus taught this, there are some who say that when Paul speaks of the apostasia or the rebellion, he's actually referring to that part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, and that may well be, but I'm actually not so sure. Because if you go ahead to 2 Thessalonians 2 down to verses 9 and 12, you'll notice that the lawless one that is the Antichrist is going to perform false miracles and then, says Paul, he deceives those who are already perishing. So this deceit prevents them from seeing the truth. And so because Paul refers to this deception of the ungodly, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, I think, from my perspective, that the rebellion he mentions here is an apostasy of the world, not an apostasy within the church. 
But how can people who never knew God apostatize from God? I mean, they can't fall away from him if they were never in him. Now, from my reading of 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the time of the end will see the greatest revolt against God that the human race has ever seen. You might think of Romans 1.18 and following. There, Paul speaks of a knowledge of God that's present in every human being by nature. That is, says Paul, we all have an inner witness within us, every human being does, of the reality of a creator God. It's what it means to be in his image. But, says Paul, men and women suppress this knowledge. And in consequence, God gives them over to ever-increasing wickedness. That's Romans 1. So from my vantage point, prior to the day of the Lord, we will see the greatest rebellion against the Creator in human history. Perhaps any talk of the Creator will result in persecution. Look, we know in, you know, in our day, there are nations who have adopted a, a national policy of atheism, denying of God. Now, perhaps, and you know, this is only speculation, but perhaps what Paul is speaking about is a time in which any talk of the great God of heaven is going to be anathema. Well, Paul mentions the second thing that must happen. He calls him the man of lawlessness, and then he adds the son of destruction. He has to come. Well, clearly, Paul's speaking about the Antichrist, but why does he give him these two titles? Well, no doubt, the title Lawless One is probably taken from Daniel 11, verse 36, which says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and speak astonishing things against the god of gods. You know, from this, I assume that this will be the policy of the Antichrist who will come. He will bring blasphemy against God, and he will take it to an astonishing level, a level that the entire earth has never seen before. And then, says Paul, he's also the son of destruction. It's a fascinating title because the only other place this title is ever used in our Bible is in John 17, verse 12, where Jesus used that title and applied it to Judas Iscariot. Judas says Jesus is the son of destruction. He is the lost one. I take it then to mean that when Paul uses that phrase and applies it to the Antichrist, he doesn't mean that the Antichrist will destroy many. Instead, he means that the Antichrist is the one who is predestined to destruction. He can't win. Now then, Paul goes beyond that. He says this man opposes every so-called God and every object of worship. And I take that to mean he's not just going to seek to destroy the Christian faith. He's going to seek to destroy every faith in every god or goddess. And next, says Paul, he's going to take up his seat in the temple of God. And from that temple, he's going to proclaim himself to be God and demand that the human race worship him. Now then, this passage has been the subject of intense debate. I mean, there are those who argue that the Antichrist is either going to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem himself, or that the temple in Jerusalem is going to have to be rebuilt, and then the Antichrist will arrive and there take up his throne. Uh, well, there are others who argue that, you know, since Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that's an example, he's going to talk about the church as the temple of God, 
that they argue that this text here in 2 Thessalonians must mean that the, the Antichrist will in some fashion arise out of the Christian faith. You know, there are those who have taught that throughout history. And still others argue that, that the Antichrist will establish his own temple wherever that is going to be. Well, nonetheless, for Paul, these two events, a worldwide rejection of the God of creation, and then the coming of a man who destroys all faiths and then proclaims himself as the only object of worship in the world, this is going to happen before the day of the Lord arrives. Now, I've delayed this discussion until now, but I think we need to talk about a very essential doctrine. It's the doctrine of imminence. You know, Matthew 24, 50 says that the master will come on a day when his servant does not expect him, at an hour he does not know. Luke 12, verse 40 says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or we might go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, for you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Well, these passages leave us with an expectancy of imminency. Christ could come at any moment, and that's exactly right. Jesus is coming at an hour we do not expect. His coming will be sudden, and it will surprise many. And yet, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 seems like before that day arrives, two things have to occur. Is that contradictory? Well, I don't know that it is. I don't think it is. I think the coming of Jesus is indeed imminent. We may well go from the present day to the time of the end in a very, very short order. At any rate, we must always as believers be prepared for the time of the end. It may be upon us at any moment. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. What would you say to those who think the church is fear-mongering? when it comes to teaching the end times, and that our focus should actually exclusively be on God's love. Well, I think I would probably say that, um, you know, if there's a road sign on the road that you're traveling that says, um, road is washed out ahead, and if an individual said, well, you're fear-mongering, you should really be having a much more positive message about how good the present road is, so feel free to carry on. Um, we would respond by saying, you know, that's really not fear-mongering. It's uh, about truth-telling so that we can take proper precautions. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Persevering in Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We're so grateful for those who tune into our radio program every day, read our online resources, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we received an encouraging note from a couple. Robbie and Karen wrote to say, We found ourselves in the same situation as many folk, unable to fellowship with other believers in Christ since the COVID virus has started. We were so grateful to tune into Back to the Bible Canada to be fed God's Word and have the passages so clearly explained. Both of us have learned so much since the COVID lockdown began. Well, we're so thankful to hear words of encouragement like this from people all over Canada. And we're grateful for those who give financially so that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives. 
Don't forget, this month, every dollar you give will be doubled up to $50,000. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.